this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value. Things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey. Go to valuebuilder.com. Well, my next guest has sold not only one, but two companies to Facebook and a third to Apple. His name is Charles Jolly, and his most recent business was a company called Oslo, which was in the digital assistance space. You know these guys that Apple has Siri, Amazon's got Alexa, Google's now got Google Assistant embedded into their new speaker, Google Home. So this is a burgeoning kind of industry. And Jolly, to his credit, recognized this early and got in. He got some venture capital money around him and built a product, ultimately sold it to Facebook with zero revenue. He didn't have a dollar revenue, uh, but sold it for a chunk of change, as he'll tell you in this interview with Charles Jolly. Charles Jolly, welcome to Build to Sell Radio. Thank you. Nice to be here. So you've sold a company to Facebook twice and one to Apple. Yeah. <laughs> What's the secret to selling companies? I think I should be asking you this. This is a <laughs> this is quite a pedigree. Yeah, well, you know, they say um, in real estate, you make your money when you buy your property. I think in, in companies, you really make your money knowing when to sell it. Um, and and I think that's been, for me, um, the, the key lesson I've learned over the kind of history of building my companies is you need to think about all your exits along the way and where and when would you be willing to sell and who might you sell to. And, you know, you kind of in the background, like I think almost as like a almost as like a second job while you're trying to build your company. You always want to be building relationships with the people that might want to buy you if you ever did decide to sell and and just kind of keeping a sense of like, what are their interests right now? Um, because a lot of times like a really good sell is just about timing. It's about knowing like you've got a thing you built that you think could be valuable, but then they have to like actually get to the place where they've decided that they really need it and you know they're willing to go outside in the marketplace to grab it it's this, um, it's this cultivating that relationship over time I, I know in your yeah. case you've had these three uh, uh, exits to obviously brand name companies I thought we'd yeah. dig in on Oslo first because it's the most recent I think you just yeah. just sold it back in in the summer of 2017 I just got back from my post-sale vacation uh, where'd you go <laughs> Uh, I went all over. I was in Italy and then Germany and then Hawaii. So oh, sounds great. All the way around the circle, the globe. Yeah. Sounds great. Well, first of all, how did you get the idea <laughs> for Oslo? So, like, what kind of business was it, and and what was what was the idea? Yeah. So Oslo was actually uh, something I started thinking about just after I sold my previous company in 2011. I kind of put it on a back burner for a while. It was really. It was basically a, a virtual, what we ended up building was a virtual assistant, very similar to Alexa or Siri or the Google Assistant. Uh, but of course, none of those existed five years ago, six years ago. 
Um, but it was kind of obvious to me from the previous company I've been working on that some kind of new interface was going to develop that was not apps on our phones. Um, and, you know, wasn't sure exactly what that would be yet, but we really started Oslo with the, the whole thesis behind Oslo was we're going to go build this thing. Um, we're going to design the next generation of, of, of kind of interfaces that you can communicate with. And, um, you know, either we're going to be able to find a way to get that into market. And in that case, we get to be the next Google. Um, and if we don't, you know, our bet is that there aren't going to be very many companies that will ever even attempt something this audacious. And that'll probably make us really valuable to somebody. Um, and which is eventually obviously ended up being what happened so, and, and Facebook bought us. So when you started Oslo, um, Siri, like Gen 1 of Siri was in the marketplace, wasn't it? Gen 1 of Siri had just been introduced, but it was much simpler version than, you know, what people think about today. It was really very, very simple command interfaces. Um, and, you know, the next generation really of assistance that it, it, we, we even built, Oslo, I would say, was even a next generation beyond what you see with Alexa today, where you could ask it questions. I would use it to plan nights out with my friends. It, it knew about, um, you know, 20 million restaurants in the United States. It could, it had read through reviews from lots of different websites and could actually um, intelligently understand, you know, th what you wanted to do and help you um, plan and, and work with you more than just saying, you know, send a message to my mother. You could say something like, you know, help me plan a date. And it would actually understand all the nuance that goes into doing a good job around that. That's so cool. And so ultimately, yeah. um, so did you have customers? Like what was the revenue of the company? How did, like, what, give me a sense of how big it got before you sold it. Yeah. So it's funny. These kind of companies, they're really, they're really unusual. You, you tend to not really focus on revenue very early because what you're trying to do is, first of all, just build a, a technology that even works. So this was kind of one of those things where if it worked, everybody knew it'd be super valuable, but making it work is super hard. So we spent most of our company's time on that, just building the system. We launched it. We had some users um, on for our phone app and we had a web app. Um, but, you know, it became really obvious um, just shortly after we launched that the future of these things would really be they were going to live inside of big companies and Amazon was launching something, Google was launching something. So um, so we started uh, in the last year before we, we sold the company, we kind of pivoted towards making this available for big companies to use and to distribute through their own products. And kind so we were talking to- Yeah, exactly. And, and so major, major tech companies basically and consumer companies, we were- we were working with probably um, four or five of them before we sold to Facebook. Got it. Okay, so I want to get to the Facebook sale, but before I get there, how are you financing this? I know you personally had this this other exit where you'd sold yeah. to to Facebook. I mean, are you just putting all your own money into the into the deal, or do you have other people investing in it with you? Yeah, in this one, I mean, you know, this was my third company, um, and and so I we had venture money, and we used so we had really great partners with Greylock. Um, was our main investor. They're pretty top tier VC here in the Valley. Um, and they were our main investor. We also had um, Jerry Yang, the founder of Yahoo, was was an investor. So we had a pretty good set. That was that was our primary funding was those guys. And how does it work? I mean, do you just go to them and say, look, I got this crazy idea. I've been successful in the past. Give me a few shekels. Like, how, how does it actually, how do you come up with the value of an idea? It's completely in the ether. There's no valuation 
metric you can use. Like, how did you deal with that? Yeah, it's totally about um, you're you're definitely definitely part of the this kind of business is what you get to when you're a known quantity and you've you've built businesses before. Um, but you know, I think a lot of it is the venture venture funding here has a really well known process for they have a well developed process for thinking about how a company might be valued down the road even before it really exists yet. And you know, this kind of company is really well suited for it because the outcome is really huge if it was successful and kind of plan B is like still pretty big. So it's the sort of thing that venture capitalists really like to think about. I would say I would say the thing that was really important that that about this company is a lesson I'd learned from previous ones is, you know, when you're whoever your customer is, if you're selling the company to an investor, if you're selling a product but selling the company, you have to think about formulating the company almost like a product that the investor is going to want to buy. So we really spent a lot of time thinking about building it. We knew this was going to need venture capital funding. Um, and I was working with the venture capital uh, with Greylock and some others very early on. So I did this in partnership with them. But, you know, we designed the company around the kind of investments that these guys like to make. So it was a pretty easy decision for them to put some money into it when the time came. How much did they put in in the beginning? We did two rounds. The total amount they put in was $14 million. We did one round uh, for um, like around six and a half, and then the other one for seven and a half. And so how did you go to them the second time without any revenue, without any customers, yeah. and ask for more money? <laughs> you know, you got, you got to think of your investors as partners along the way, especially for a business like this one, where you know you're going to need multiple rounds of funding. And so we kept them up to speed. One of my investors was in our office almost every week where we would just make sure that we were doing this really in partnership with them. So, you know, when it came time to put in more money, it was pretty, pretty, again, you want, my, my point of view is you want to make it an easy decision for them um, because, you know, all along the way we'd sort of kept in sync and, and, so you, and we knew what kind of risk we were taking. And so you guys are, are whiteboarding, uh, in order to come up with a valuation, you're saying, well, you know, down the road, it could be worth X. Um, who, who was the X? Like, who, who were you envisioning would buy the thing uh, in the spectacular exit? Yeah, I mean, really, you think, OK, you go, you say, OK, companies like this, um, you know, if you go public in your Google, you're worth billions of dollars. Everybody's excited. It doesn't really matter what your pricing is. If you sell it to a tech company for as a technology play, those kinds of companies typically go for, you know, somewhere between 100 to 300 million dollars. Um, and so let's like, let's assume that, right? So you kind of know just broadly what these companies will go for, um, whoever the buyer is. Like we didn't know exactly who, but you know, you could assume like if it's this kind of tech, it's going to be, let's say Google. Um, and and then based on that, it's that's actually how you back into the valuation is you say, all right. For them to get a pretty high return, that they need to own a certain percentage, and you know we need this amount of money, and so the value of the company is, is you know basically their percentage for the amount of money we need them to put in. <laughs> so it's it's almost the opposite. You arrive at the valuation at these very very early stages. You really arrive at the valuation based on how much equity do they need in order to feel good about their investment, and how much money do you need to like de-risk the company into the next stage. 
and that and then the valuation is whatever it is because there's no real external value to it right we don't have revenue we don't have product we don't have anything at that point sure um so yeah you're working on the other variables instead tell me more about the 100 to 300 million dollars like where's that number coming from that's interesting it's pretty typical like if you build a really um if you build a valuable core technology Let's say, uh, you know, and we could look at like how much did Siri sell for? They sold for, uh, I think, around 200 million. Um, if you look at, you know, how much do companies buy, um, you know, when when they buy a core technology like this, whether it's whether it's something for their op, maybe they buy an operating system, maybe they buy, you know, a search engine, whatever it is. It it just kind of tends to be, in tech world, if you are selling for the team you sell for under 100 million if you're selling for technology it's like 100 to 500 million if you're selling for the business it's going to be higher than that that's hmm. sort of how these core technology plays work interesting. interesting so you just want to look around your market and like know the pricing right it's just like anything else if you're going to buy real estate you just know what the prices are going for this is something that VCs do all the time so it's pretty straightforward for them Got it. And then you can back into the, the valuation yep. numbers from there. Exactly. Successful. Yep. Got it. Right. So, I mean, you, you're going on, you go to the second round, you get another 7 million bucks from these kind of top tier venture capital firms and, and Jerry, yep. obviously a, a brand name investor. Um, yep. at, at what point did you decide that it was time to sell it versus try to you know, monetize it in a different way? Yeah. You know, you're always working uh, the way I think about it is you're always working on, you know, like I said, know when to get, know when to exit, right? So you, you have kind of a thesis for what needs to happen for my company to be really big and successful and independent. And, and then what needs to happen for me to be able to get a good exit. And, um, you know, what happened for us was, like I said, we started the business and we, we started it saying, okay, we're going to build this technology platform that we know is going to really need to exist in the future. The market doesn't exist yet. So we don't really know how it's going to be like, could we just launch an app and will people get it? Um, or is it going to be, you know, distributed through partners? Like we don't know yet. And, um, and then basically what happened was, uh, let's see here, I think in 2016, Alexa started to take off. Google announced their assistant. At that point, it was really obvious to us that the future of these assistants was going to be within these very large corporations. And so that was when we decided, okay, the best step for us is to start working with these companies. And, um, you know, you basically, um, you know, one way, two things is going to happen. Either one of them will distribute us, in which case we're still going to be that big independent business or they're going to decide to buy us. And um, either way, we win. So I think that's kind of the way you think of, I think about it is, you know, I'm always trying to angle towards how do I make sure I always have multiple ways to win no matter what happens. And, and you just go into that. So we didn't really know we would sell exactly in 2016, but we knew it was a possibility. And so, you know, I think like making that pivot was a way for us to open ourselves up to being able to exit when the time was right. Got and I would say, by the way, along the way, we'd been talking to these companies, like we knew where people were and what they were kind of thinking about. So that, that helped inform our decisions. Got it. And so you've got Google Assistant, which is part of the Google Home product now, I think. Yep. And then you've got uh, Apple, yeah. Apple mm -hmm. Siri. I don't know mm -hmm. Alexa, but that's just because I'm an Apple guy. What's Alexa? 
That's the <laughs> so Amazon. Alexa is Amazon's voice right. assistant. And actually, Amazon's voice, Alexa is actually probably one of the most important products to happen in this category because Siri, you know, for a long time has basically been control over your phone, but it's mm -hmm. a pretty narrow product. Alexa is a speaker that you can, Alexa is is a assistant, but it comes inside of a speaker. That's right. Okay. Like yeah. kind of like Google Home. Um, and it was the first one that really took off. Like nobody bought Siri. They just got it because it came on their phone. People bought Alexa's, this Alexa speaker. And um, that's really kind of what made everybody else sit up. And so now Apple has the HomePod, Google has Google Home. Everybody's got their speakers, but it all really started with Alexa. And it, it, were you guys in a boardroom there saying, uh-oh, are we going to be left without a chair at this, uh, at the musical chairs here? Because, I mean, Amazon's got a big play in, in Alexa. Google's got their play. Yeah. Apple's got Siri. Were you kind of going, man, there's, there's no more chairs here in this musical chairs? Uh, there aren't too many other big tech companies that are going to want a digital assistant. Yeah, I would say we said, oh, there's... Um, well, it was, it's a problem and an opportunity, right? Uh, usually those two are kind of two sides of the same coin. Um, yeah, definitely we're like, oh boy, you know, there's now we have all the big guys are suddenly gunning for us, right? Like we've been working on this for years and all of a sudden all the big guys are coming after us, after our space. Um, on the other hand, that means there's a lot of other companies that, you know, were previously not interested in this sort of thing that are going to be paying attention to it. So we decided, you know, instead of focusing on the big guys who are coming after us, let's go focus on the new opportunities that's created and, and you know, see if we can do a deal with them. So how did it go from there? I mean, did you hire an investment banker to take it to market? Did you just do it yourself? How did that work? We took the product to market. So, you know, the best deals, they always say the best deals with companies, the best, um, the best exits, companies aren't sold, they're bought. Mm -hmm. And um, and really, that's how we approach this. So we did actually end up working with an investment banker, but um, we kind of worked with them because we could tell that this was going to be very competitive and there'd be a lot of companies bidding for us. So we wanted their help to help us maximize our outcome. But but really, I would say the big thing that we did was we went and we started selling our product and a partnership to uh, every company we could think of that we thought could benefit from having access to Oslo's technology. And, and we never sold the company. We always sold a partnership. And, and that's what we really focused on. Interesting. Um, and we knew, of course, that, you know, it, this is, I think, really the kind of, I think, the secret to really getting a, a great exit about with these kinds of companies is, you know, you focus on just going and come up with the best um, the the best partnership that you could imagine come up with one that if you really if they said yes no matter how unlikely you think it is if they said yes it would actually like transform their business and it would transform your business <laughs> because maybe they will say yes right and and nothing's better than having a really big independent company with lots of money that that's flowing in through it but um you know the the other thing that sometimes happens is they'll say They'll get really excited about the value you could offer to them, and they'll start to say, look at what you're going to get and say, well, wait a second. Why are we letting them take all of that? Why don't we just buy them and, and you know, we'll, we'll keep all of it for ourselves? And that's how these really big deals almost always get done. Um, so, yeah, don't focus on selling your company is one thing. Focus on, um, you know, selling the partnership and then let someone buy you if you can.
I think that's always the better way to exit. Love it. So you're instigating these conversations with a variety of tech companies. Obviously, Facebook was one of those, but who else was at the table? Oh, we're not allowed to talk about it. We had a bunch of customers, though, and they're all name brands that you've heard of. Um, Any one of them would have been a great, you know, partnership. That's really what we're looking for. Um, But, you know, if they bought us, they all would have been great homes for them. All of them big names you've heard of. Okay. So you're having these conversations with lots of brand names, one of which is Facebook. Um, When did things go from flirting to serious with Facebook? You know, it happens really quick in these kind of deals. And eventually, and what happens is basically somebody eventually makes the overture and says, hey, you know what, we're going to, we'd like to buy you. And um, at that point, you have to let your other customers know that that's going to happen potentially. And, um, you know, one or more of those folks will come back and say, well, maybe we'd like to take a look at it too. <laughs> um, and and so that, and then you get into this really intensive um process and so where many, you're talking to a lot of different people. How many companies were you having acquisition style conversations as opposed to partnership conversations with once you'd sort of said, look, Facebook's ready to make an acquisition offer? Yeah, we, we had, we had multiples. And unfortunately, a lot of this gets up getting covered by NDA for good reason. Got um, it. But Got in it. our case, we had, we had quite a few. Yeah. Got it. And so with with regards to Facebook, you're you start to obviously you consummated a deal with Facebook. What was it about the Facebook offer that 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 made it win out over the others? You know, I, the great thing about you know the funny thing is um, I'd always thought if there was ever a good home for Oslo, if we did have to sell, I'd always thought Facebook was probably the most natural fit. Um, for a bunch of reasons. I think the big one is that, you know, I'd been at Facebook. I know they have a really great focus on consumers and they really want to um, kind of be at the forefront of the next generation of interfaces. They have a lot of stuff going on where a, an assistant like ours would be valuable, like VR and messaging and other areas. Um, and uh, so, you know, when I was, when since we did have a lot of people bidding for us, um, there was a price consideration, but I think like a big part of what I was thinking about as the CEO was, um, you know, what's going to make this vision for the product that we've been working so hard on for four years have the biggest impact that it possibly can? How do we really complete that journey? And, um, and you know, who's going to treat the team the best? Who's going to take care of their careers? going forward, I want to make sure that everybody comes away from this. And, you know, a year or two after the deal's done, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, most of my employees are coming back and saying, former employees are coming back and saying, well, I'm really glad we ended up there. And out of all the ones, you know, there, there are a lot of them that would have been great homes, but Facebook just kind of hit on all of those points for me. Um, and that really made them a, a favorite in my mind. Whoops. So, yeah, got, got it. What proportion of the Oslo staff um, participated, economically benefited in some way from the Facebook acquisition? Uh, everybody got something. Yeah, I mean, because everyone was sh- everyone has options and shares in the company. And did they um, be, so, were they li- did they become liquid at the time of the acquisition, or did they roll over into Facebook stock? Or how does that work? So um, 
yeah, again, I can't talk about the details of our deal, but I can tell you what happens typically in sure. these kind of deals in Silicon Valley is um, usually you have a cash component and a stock component that's the sale. And um, for, and then, uh, you know, basically people that go along and remain can continue working with the company will get a portion of their shares in a portion of their economic return in new shares in the company. And then they'll get a portion of it in cash. Um, and, and investors usually end up taking cash, right? Cause they don't, they don't necessarily want shares in the, the new company. So, um, that's typically how you'd see it structured is employees end up getting a mix and then investors get, you know, mostly cash. And then, um, you know, everybody else is kind of in the middle somewhere. I know there were a lot of negotiations that, that went on with Facebook. I mean, as you look back over the deal, what would you say was the one thing you'd like to do over again? What was the one thing that if you had a you know, mulligan, you, you, you'd take it? You know, the funny thing is, uh, I was thinking about this question earlier, is, is that uh, th this was my third company to sell. It actually went really well. And, uh, and, and, a, and a large part of that, though, was because I'd done this before and I'd learned a lot of lessons. <laughs> and, uh, and, and what I will say, I, I think, though, that the biggest lesson that I applied this time that I wish I'd known the first time I sold was um, really about how I communicated all of this to the team, because that was probably probably the thing that made my first sale, my previous company, strobe to Facebook the hardest was in that instance, especially we were selling the team as much as we were anything else, um, you know, and what our team was capable of. But when you get into this process and you're selling the company, um, you know, there's it, it's a it's um, it's really hard to keep everybody coming along with you and and people you know have different levels of risk tolerance and and so you know a lot of times you end up dealing with like people inside your company that think about quitting and you might have important people quit that's actually what happened to me in my previous company like in the process of trying to sell my company i also ended up dealing with this huge drama about some people you know i had important key employees who decided to quit because they weren't really sure what was going to happen next and and um and a lot of just internal turmoil that was really distracting from the sale so this time around we were extremely transparent with the company every single week i basically was up in front of the whole company saying exactly what we were doing that we're going to do these partnership deals we hope some of them work we know that sometimes those are going to turn into acquisition offers and as that process happened we let people know where we were and I would say it didn't eliminate all of the anxiety that, that went along with this process for the team, but it kept most of it under control. And we had, we had relatively little drama this time. That was the thing that I really regretted the first time around was how hard it was to get the team over the line. Um, and this time went a lot better just because we were so transparent the entire way. I guess that works when the entire team is economically incentivized to sell. In other words, you're completely aligned with the entire team. In the case of Strobe, your first company that you sold to Facebook, were you all as aligned? Yeah, they were. Because, um, you know, tech companies, we typically give everybody options. So everybody had an incentive to sell and there was, you know, a great job on the other side for them um, once the sale completed. So. But 
you know, I think the problem is that a lot of times people have a hard time um, really judging exactly how much value they're going to get out of a sale, right? They don't really know. Like they, they didn't really get to decide on the company. They didn't really get to decide on when we sold or how much it went for. Um, you know, a lot of times employees hold stock and they don't really know what that value is, but now they do. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, it's not that you did anything wrong. It's just that, you know, people respond differently when they have a lot of details that they can compare against versus, um, no details and they make a bunch of assumptions. Um, you know, it's just kind of a funny thing about how people work that way. So, um, they were incentivized, but, but the problem was that they came at it with wildly different expectations about what they were going to get. And, and because I didn't do a good enough job of communicating to them all along the way, um, you know, I when when finally, like all the details did become available, which I didn't hide from anybody. I just, I didn't like share anything until I had the information. I didn't do enough job preparing people for what might come next. Um, once they actually did have the details, you know, people would f- respond very differently. And some that's where we would get all this drama. Really between the lines, it sounds like, it, well, not between the lines. I mean, you said as much that some people had an inflated notion of what their options were going to be worth and others had a more realistic view and, and, and that caused mismatch in expectations. Yeah, they had inflated ideas of what their options would be worth how much their contrib- individual contribution to the company would be valued. Um, they had different ideas of what their life would be like at Facebook in, once the company sold, right? So you have, you have some people that are at your company, they're just like, no way, I will never work for Facebook, never, or whoever the buyer is, right? You have other people who are like really excited because they've always wanted a job at Facebook. Mm. Um, and, and so, yeah, you just have really wildly different expectations there, um, both in terms of how much they thought they were going to get for the, for the work they've already done and how much they think they'll be rewarded for, the, for what they will get in the future. I find, um, it, I find this to be such a fascinating topic because, uh, because there really does seem to be very, two very polarized uh, schools of thought as it relates to uh, kind of opening the books, being transparent. Uh, you know, years ago, you had books written by Jack Stack and Bill Burlingham. One was called The Stake in the Outcome. Another was The Great yep. Game of Business, which was all about yes. total transparency, teach the, you know, the team about valuation, about the key numbers, and, and they will be much better employees. Um, yep. There's another school of thought, which is basically, you know, there's a reason there are entrepreneurs and a reason they're employees. Entrepreneurs are, have the stomach for it. Employees, frankly, don't. And, and if you give a little bit of information to employees, uh, it, you know, you know, it can, t- it can send them off into a tailspin. Um, it, it's a fascinating topic. And in your case, I think it sounds like you've done a little bit of both. Yeah. And it's, I've definitely, as I've gotten further along in my career, I've biased towards more and more transparency and, and just, uh, but you, you're totally right. Like the downside of transparency is you, you deal with um, employees getting nervous, you kind of along the way, right? Um, but I think what I decided in this company and the reason it works, so with Oslo, I was transparent. Basically, my, my idea was I'm going to share tons of information and I'm going to educate people and then I'm going to meet with them. I mean, I mean, I'd meet with my employees regularly anyway, but I'm going to make sure that I deal with whatever comes up along the way. 
to basically inoculate them against all of this, this spike of uncertainty that happens right before a sale. Um, and, you know, so my point of view is kind of like, I would rather spend, yeah, it, you definitely being super transparent takes energy and it takes extra work along the way. I'd rather spend that along the way and not have to, not have to do it all at the same time. I'm also trying to negotiate a sale of my company versus having to do it all at once at the end. How do you avoid the, uh, the accusation that you're just a money grubbing capitalist, that you didn't really care about this product in the first place. All you cared about was selling for the highest possible price. I mean, do you, do you get that from employees who are so product centric that they're so obsessed with the product that the idea of selling out is something that's an athema to them? Yeah, totally. You sometimes get that. And, you know, sometimes those people just, they, they won't go along with the deal. Um, and there's nothing you can really do about it, but um, you know, I think, I think part of that though, and the way I tried to deal with it is, you know, you try to make it clear when you present to people who you thinking about selling to the case for why you think this is really not ending the mission that you started with, but it's the best way to complete it. And, you know, in this case, I thought that was actually true. I mean, we set out to create the next generation of interfaces, the way you're going to ask for services and communicate with your computers. And we want that to be used by as many people as possible. And, you know, we built the technology. The biggest thing that we could not do on our own as an independent company was distribute it to consumers. And Facebook solved that problem for us. And it's not like they were taking the technology and, you know, going to use it for some completely different purpose. Um, but, but, you know, I think you do have to demonstrate as much as you can to your employees that, you do care about the mission and that, you know, part of the reason you're selling is it, that may not even be the reason you're selling, but at least that you're trying to sell it in a way that, that cares for the mission. Right. And by the way, if it's not, if you are having to abandon the mission, um, I think you have to be honest about that too. Um, my previous company strobe, we really, basically the original idea behind the company, which was about helping publishers with the, with iPads and things like that, the thesis didn't really play out. The market kind of went a different direction. And, um, and in that case, you know, I really just had to fess up to the team, just like, Hey, look, opportunity we all have been jamming for has not worked. Um, it didn't turn out like we made some bets that didn't go our way, but, um, we've built something really valuable. We have a really valuable team and there's an asset here we've created. And we owe it to ourselves to, you know, make sure that ends up somewhere useful. And so that's why we're selling to Facebook. We're not going to work on the same thing we were doing before, but we're getting to apply like the time has not been wasted. Um, and, you know, some people bought into that and some people didn't. And there's just, you know, that's fine. And, you know, those people who didn't buy into it, by the way, went off and started a different company and they're, you know, slightly different from what we were doing and they're doing really well right now. So, you know, it's fine. It worked out. It worked out in the end. Interesting. Yep. So I've got a sort of a, a, a peculiar question for you, but it, it strikes me that you're one of the a handful of guys on earth that has negotiated the sale of a company to both Facebook and Apple. And, and one of the things I think people would be very curious to know, I'm curious about is what did you I mean, walk us inside Facebook. So I'm going to close my eyes. I want you to describe to me what it's like 
to walk in to a meeting uh, where the discussion on the agenda is, uh, you know, a huge acquisition by Facebook. I mean, are there security passes? Do you go to a special door? Is Mike, Mark Zuckerberg there to like serve you coffee? Like, what does it look like <laughs> to walk in to that deal? Yeah, I mean, you know, Facebook, all of these tech companies, they have a, they have a really secure part that you, they have, a, you know, a lot of security you have to go through in order to get in there. So, you know, you get your whole team together, you spend a lot of time talking with people on the phone ahead of time about what their interest is in and, and try to get as much sense of as you can about what their reasoning is about why are they even spending time with you. Spend a lot of time on your deck so you have some materials to talk to. And then you get the whole team together and show up, you know, at Facebook headquarters, which is this huge, beautiful building that's just been constructed. That's um, it's like a giant hangar that's a block long and, um, you know, has this beautiful artwork inside. And, and basically you go in there and you check in and you get your security badge and you wait and then a assistant comes and takes you into a room and then, you know, it's, they're actually very good at negotiating. So, you know, some of these big corporations, you have 10, 15 people file in at Facebook. It's more like three or four people that come in, usually somebody who's in the tech side and somebody in the business side. And then they have a person there whose entire job is just to buy companies. Um, and you know, you start talking and it as much as possible. The funny thing is, is you want to keep it as much like a regular meeting as you possibly can. <laughs> Even though, you know, if you pass that first meeting, you're going to have probably two or three more meetings like that. And each time you have a new one, someone higher and higher up is going to eventually come in. So you might have the CTO, you might eventually have Mark in the meeting. Um, and, and, you know, as much as possible, you just want to treat them like normal people and just have a good conversation about your business because they're just people and they're trying to figure out the best way to build their business. Um, and, uh, you know, I always try to just like kind of forget who they are <laughs> and just focus on it. But, you know, it is kind of surreal at certain times when you just think about the people sitting around um, in these meetings that you're talking about the future of your business with them. And, uh, you know, the number of the amount of money that they control, the number of people's lives that they impact on a regular basis. Um, but you know what? They're just people and they don't really know that much more than you do. Um, and and they're trying to see you. They have you there because they think you have something that's to offer. So I think that's the thing I try to keep reminding myself is, you know, they're just like me. That's good advice. Who was the most senior person that you met at Facebook in the process? Uh, this time around, I think we got involved up to the C-suite. I, Mark, um, I'm not sure. I, I, I don't know how much of that I can talk about anyway. Okay. We, the, the, the last time I sold, we, we went all the way up to though. I mean, you get, you get the executives involved. Like they, they care a lot. Like everybody was talking about, and eventually Mark still approves every, every transaction that, that Facebook does. They don't buy very many companies. It's so funny. So I got to tell you a story. So my last company, uh, it was acquired in 2008. In 2007, Facebook uh, became interested in the business market, which was our specialty. And so uh -huh. we had, <laughs> this goes back to 2007, when, uh, when they were on University Avenue in Palo Alto. Yeah. And I went yeah. to their, their office and they were growing so quickly that they would have a desk of like 
that would normally be like a small desk for like an intern, whatever. And they would have yep. literally like three people working. At three people the crammed desk. in. Yeah. And it's I, not like that now. No, no, I'd <laughs> imagine that, uh, that's why, like my vision of Facebook is very different than yours. Cause it was yeah, like, no, this, totally. like a dumpy. It, it, exactly. Yeah. No, it was like that when I first joined my first time around in 2011, but this time it's this huge, beautiful campus that right. they built. And I mean, it's just, it's incredible. It's a, it's a really beautiful place to work and then of course they take you for all the free food and you know you get your choice of like which five restaurants on campus do you want to go right to? right and your chai <laughs> tea and what you know what what yeah. origin you want to get it from yeah yeah which um, of the four coffee vendors do you want to use <laughs> yeah 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 so here's the question so you've been around this a lot you've been an entrepreneur in residence um at a VC firm, you've had three yeah. businesses that you've started and exited. Um, what is the dirtiest trick that you see acquirers, and I would include venture capital investors in that bucket of acquirers, try to put over on entrepreneurs? How do entrepreneurs get taken advantage of by buyers? Yeah, and, um, and I will say explicitly that um, I'm not going to, Obviously, this is not about anybody that we've re that that we're, we've talked about. So I don't want to um, Facebook. By the way, I will say they're very good. They're very generally a very good actor when it comes to buying. I just I just want to say that if if you do have somebody, I've I've been very happy with how they act. But um, you will see. I think one of the dirtiest tricks you see happen with these companies um, is they they really want to get you down the pathway. And then um, with them and get you to kind of start talking about how much you're willing to to go for, and then then they'll they'll squeeze you. Then they do what you know we call kind of a squeeze, where they will they will come back and say, oh well, you know we can't make this offer. We can only go for um, you know like half of what we initially said we would do, and um, and then they basically kind of try to leave it, take it or say take it or leave it, and um, and and what they're betting on is that you're not going to be willing to walk away from the table. That that is like I would say the number one thing that that I see happen with these these kinds of deals is they come at you with some offer that's way below what you said you're willing to go for, and then you know act like you're and they'll and then then they start they'll start talking you down. It's it's like really funny because you'll see these companies where at first they're talking about how awesome you are and how much how great they think your team will be when you join and then you know then they make you an offer and then start talking about how you know your company's terrible and if you you know if if your company was really any good you wouldn't be talking to them in the first place and you know they try to like really make you doubt yourself because they're trying to get the best value that they can um and frankly the only antidote for that is to walk away and 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 boy it is tough because you're going to have to walk away and just let it sit there and make them call you if they really want it. And um, that's the only way it works. You have to just be really hard, play play really hardball with them in that respect. Um, How do you know that walking away, because walking away sounds like good, simple advice, right? It's negotiation, you gotta be willing to walk away from the table, but this yeah. could be a life-changing number for a business owner, right? They, they may not yeah. have the luxury of, of multiple offers this could be the one offer they've got how do, how do they not overplay their hand 
um, and, and sort of play hardball when really, you know, they're, they're going to overplay their hand. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, I, that's, and that's what the acquirer is betting on, right? Is that, is that you're going to, um, you're not going to, because you really do need the money and it's life changing. Um, I think the best thing I can encourage you is try to always take the long point of view on things. There will be other deals. There will be other offers in the future. Um, and you know, if you want the best option, you're going to, there's just, if you focus too much on what you're getting, if you even think much about what you're getting, the more you let yourself imagine what's it, what it's going to be like when the sale is done and think past that too much, um, the harder it's going to be for you to do that. So I, I try really hard not to even, not to even imagine what it would be like to get whatever amount of money is on the table. I, I actually, in this deal, um, because it was, it was significant money for me personally, um, you know, I actually, people would ask me like, well, how much is this going to mean for you? And like, I didn't know. I intentionally did not, I tried really hard not to even calculate what this would mean for me until we got to the place where it was like, we basically had the deal on the table. Um, think of it like any other thing you're negotiating and don't try not to personalize it as much as you can. I realize that's really hard, but the more you can do that, the more it's going to let you stay rational because you don't want to overplay it either. Right. Like like you can burn your you can burn the opportunity by just, you know, overreacting to your not wanting to be too overeager. You can be too undereager. Right. You don't want to do that. But, um, you know, try your best to disassociate yourself from what the outcome is going to mean for you and just think about it like any other thing you negotiate. And, you know, most people will make the right decision that way, I think. What did you do when you finally did allow yourself to do that math for you personally? What were some of your feelings, emotions? How did that kind of impact you when you actually figured out the number? Oh, well, I mean, it's really exciting. <laughs> you know, you, you, um, and then it becomes pretty overwhelming because you start to realize that, um, you know, at least in my instance, I've been doing my own companies since I was 17, 16. And um, I've always wanted to build up a big tech company and do something of consequence. In a lot of ways, this sale, not really just because of the money, but there, there's a lot of ways that this sale for me represented an achievement of something I've been trying, some things I've been trying to do in my career for, you know, since, you know, basically 15 to 20 years almost. And, um, and, and that was really cool. And then it was followed by a little bit of, uh, kind of like, now what, <laughs> hmm. what, what's my next deck? Like, and, and so that's, that's been like, actually probably to me, the personally, the, the money's nice, but the really exciting thing is like getting a chance to actually sit down and say, okay, I've achieved something that I wanted. Now, now what do I want to do next? And, and now I have some assets. I can do some new things. Right. And, and, um, and that's been really actually the most exciting part of it. Um, it's a little overwhelming though, <laughs> when you start to think about it, <laughs> about what you, what your options are for what you do next. Yeah. All of a sudden options are infinite. Yeah. One last question on negotiation tactics, and again, I, it's rare that we have someone who's sold to, to Facebook and Apple, so I, I, you know, I want to take advantage of, of this. Yeah. One of the things that 
I think a lot of business owners get stumped by is that question, well, what do you want for your business? Um, I think acquirers ask it in different ways. Sometimes it's in the fancy meeting with a nice coffee. Other times it's out over a drink, a dinner, at a baseball game. When the corporate development guy turns around and says, what, like, what, do you, like, what would you accept or what do you think it's worth or what are you looking for? How do you respond to that question? So I think it's really important that you actually know that answer for yourself before you even consider selling anyway. And um, and I actually tell people when I advise them when they're starting companies, you should spend some time thinking about that before you start the company and be be the selfish entrepreneur for a second. Like, you know, I think out here in Silicon Valley, especially, it's really in style to talk about how you ask someone why they're doing a business and they say, oh, well, I'm trying to change the world or whatever. That's great. And that's it's probably it's true. But also, you know, you're starting a company for some reason. There are personal objectives you want to achieve. There are things you care about. And it's really important that you know that for yourself because when that moment comes and they ask you that question, what they're really looking for is fit. They want to know that there's alignment between your company and what you're selling, what you're, you know, what they're going to, you're going to do after the sale and what they need. And you want that too because, you know, you, it, there's nothing really worse than a sale that goes bad where everybody thinks they've gotten something great and then it turns out to be terrible. That's actually worse than no sale at all. So be honest and, and know it for yourself. Um, and then, you know, um, but, but yeah, you got to be ready with that answer for yourself. I, I don't even think them asking you the question is as important as you knew it way ahead of time before you even started the process. So are you saying you should answer it? About what do you want? Yeah, let, let's assume. Let's assume in my mind, I'm saying, okay, I built this company. I, you know, I want uh, whatever. Pick it up. I want a million dollars for it. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I maybe answered the wrong question. You mean like when they ask exactly how much money? Yeah, the, yeah. They oh, say, yeah. Well, how much money do you want for this company? How do you answer that? Oh yeah, you know the way I the way I always deal with it. I'm sorry, I went into this like whole deep like emotional. No, thing. I loved it. It was great. It was <laughs> good. It was good emotional um, wallow, but it but, was back but to on reality. The just on just purely the technical point. You know, yeah. um, I always put it back in terms of like, what's it going to sell for? It's really not about what I want. I'm going to sell the company if um, if it's the right thing to do. Um, but you know, I think the company for for me to make everybody happy, for me to make the investors happy, for me to make I never make it about myself. It's always about, you know, look, the investors won't let me sell for less than X. Or I have other bidders and they're not going to let me sell. They're going to ask for at least Y. Uh, or they're going to offer at least Y. And and that's how you keep the framing. And then, by the way, you have to back that up with being able to, willing to walk away. Because that's exactly where they'll pull the trick. So if you say, look, uh, this company's competitive. I think I'm going to have other bidders. Um, and... And uh, I, I think they're going to offer me at least 100 million just to pick a number. Um, and and they say they're going to say uh, that's they're not going to say this, but they're going to think, well, that's bullcrap. He's just positioning and they're going to offer you 50 million. Right. And um, and you're going to have to be willing or 80 million or whatever they're willing to do. And you have to be able to say, no, I told you 100 is the minimum that this is going to go for and walk away. Um, and and really that's the negotiation, but, but you have to be willing to ask for a number and, um, and base it on what you, th it's going to take other people. So it's not just about you, um, and then stick to it. 
Great advice because they don't necessarily know who your investors are, uh, you know, until they get right under the covers of the business. So, yeah, you may, you know, uh, you may have lots of investors that that have very strict minimum criteria to sell. Exactly, and, yeah. and I don't, I don't, I don't bluff really. Um, some people will try to play these games and they'll bluff. I don't really bluff, but um, you know, because I really want people to know that when I tell you, hey, I, the company won't go for less than X, it won't go for that. And, and, you know, I, I try to build that reputation so that, and they will still test you because, you know, there's big money on the table. Like it makes sense. They need to test you. Like they need to know that if I say a hundred that they couldn't get it for 80, cause that's a material amount of money. But, um, it helps a lot if you build a reputation for being a straight shooter and you really mean it when you say it. Um, so yeah. And, and it's always helpful when it's not you, it's your investors, it's your other buyers. It's your employees, right? You say uh, that's the other that, that's the other trick. By the way, um, I think is really helpful in these negotiations. Whenever possible, try to focus on what's going to drive a good deal for both of you. What's going to be win-win? So you know, it's a perfectly reasonable justification not to accept an offer because that's not going to work for your employees. They're all going to quit, and if they quit you're not going to have the business that you wanted, right? That's a good reason not to do something because they lose too. So, you know, it's, it's, I, I think as you're negotiating, it's really helpful whenever possible to keep it on the basis of like, how are we both going to win? Um, and you're, you're able to usually get to a, a better option outcome for everybody that way. Sounds like it. Charles, I think we're going to hear from you again. I, I got to believe there's five or six other businesses under your belt that are that you're about <laughs> I hope to, so. uh, about to. What is the best way for people to reach out and say hi? Do you have a social media or is it, what, what's the best yeah, way Yeah, you can reach me. You can reach me on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is Okito, O-K-I-T-O. At Okito. O At Okito, O-K-I-T-O. Perfect. Charles he Jolly. was a magician from the 1800s. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. Now we know the backstory. <laughs> there you go. Charles, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell, or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. -L -L Thanks for listening.